and we've been watching this for for three years or so move from the kind of bottom of the internet as it were on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture, and with particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode two, How Do We Think About Politics? Who are we? So I'm Alan Finlayson. I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia. I'm Rob Topinka. I teach and research media and cultural studies at Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher. I research digital culture at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we going to be doing this week? We're thinking about how we think about politics about the way we find out about politics online and how that changes the way we experience and think about it. So when people get political, that means they're taking on some way of thinking about and being in the world of politics. Uh, Different kinds of politics do that differently. They give us different ways of thinking about and relating to politics itself. So one of the things we talked about in the first episode was about how politics is increasingly blurring with entertainment and celebrity culture. But it's also, I think, a blurring of lines between ideologies and political positions. So so why do we care about that, (laughs) Alan? I'm glad you asked me. So politics is, at least in part, about ideas, about ways of understanding how society or economics works, about what's going wrong, about what we might reasonably expect to go right. So ideologies are really important in politics because what they do is they organise those ideas. They bring them together and group them and they connect people to them so they can organise people to do things politically. So often people use the word ideology to mean something bad, that people are kind of not thinking about the real world but caught up in the realm of ideas. But I think ideologies in the straightforward sense of isms like socialism or conservatism and liberalism, they're a really important part of how politics works. They're a way into politics for people. They give people some concepts with some agreed meanings that help people agree, that help people argue within some kind of boundary lines so they can act with each other to support something like equality or to defend tradition and the nation, whatever it might be. So the 20th century saw mass politics, huge change in economic and social life that was also connected to the big grand ideologies, socialism, conservatism, liberalism, that had things to say about all sorts of ways in which politics and society and economics worked. But the end of the 20th century, lots of people saw that as the end of ideology. But really what was going on was that ideologies were breaking down, fragmenting and changing. There were new ways of organising new kinds of demands. So feminism became a prominent way of organising some people's thinking about politics and what could be changed. Environmentalism became a way in which people could think about nature and ecology and how things might be changed and done differently. So 
isms, ideologies still organise our politics. But they're also becoming more fragmented, more complicated. People aren't so tightly caught up within particular isms when they think or do politics. And they're less able, therefore, to organise politics. There's lots of reasons for that. We mentioned some of them in the last episode. Social and economic change, the way society is more individualistic and consumerist. But it's also, I think, because of the internet. The big ideologies of the 20th century were organised around books and authors. People knew the names of key thinkers in conservatism or liberalism or socialism. Parties had meetings at which a few individual speakers talked about how those ideologies were being applied to the problems of the present, what the solutions would be, what the policies would be. Parties produced newspapers and magazines, and national newspapers were often clearly organised or aligned, rather, in relation to particular ideological positions. But that also limited the range of ideologies that people might learn about, think about and inhabit. And something that's really rapidly changed in the last decade or so is the ease in which people can find out about all kinds of political ideas and outlooks. You don't have to move from your front room to go to a party meeting or to buy a book or a pamphlet. You can find about, out about things just from where you're sitting. So Matthew Feldman from the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right, he had a really good point about the implications of all that. Let's say that you were into, I, I use inverted quotes here, Holocaust denial. You would have had to, you couldn't stumble across it in the 1980s or almost impossible to stumble across that kind of material. You'd have to know which magazines are advertising things. You'd have to uh, get a check or money order and it'd come in a sort of, you know, nondescript brown envelope. And that seems to me very far away. And even the good old days, as much as Holocaust now was a major problem in the 80s and 1990s, the good old days, because it's so easy to stumble across it. So in certain web, uh, excuse me, search platforms, if you type in the Holocaust, you're going to get a Holocaust revisionist or frankly, Holocaust denial website on the first page of results. So I think that's a really good illustration of the way in which the ease of accessing political ideas and information has changed the kinds of ways in which we can think about, find out about, respond to politics and maybe become politicized. But also what's happening is that the way people access those ideas and what they find out isn't governed by mass parties anymore or by the same kinds of mass media organisations. It's governed by a combination of individuals' whim, what they happen to be searching for, what's aggravating them that day, and the ways in which the search algorithms deliver to them particular kinds of political ideas and content. So the way people enter into the world of politics, come to believe and think certain things and habit a way of doing and thinking about politics, that's completely changed. So, for example, one of the things I found teaching students about politics is the, the kinds of information they have, the kinds of ideas that are prominent for them and how they're finding out about those ideas is really different from when I was their age. They're accessing politics through the portal of the internet. So we asked Sophie to ask our students some questions about that. I am more on the left. I think it's more difficult to say to stay left and right, as you've seen with recent elections, like the northern working class areas never voted Conservative, so they're voting for the Conservative for the first time ever. So I don't know, a bit like when um, Tony Blair was elected, a lot of Conservatives went over and voted for, um, for Labour for the first time ever. I think it's maybe old-fashioned uh, because there's other parties that are trying to do other things, sort of like, I care about the environment, so you've got the Green Party, but I don't think that's particularly left because it doesn't matter whether you're on the left or on the right, we still all have to live in the same environment. I'm not really sure what left and right means anymore, certainly not in a contemporary British 
political setting. It's kind of like a necessary evil. If I think about politics, I tend to think like, what do I think is going to be the best for the most people? So for me, that normally tends to fall on the left because I think like, you know, better social care, better social housing, benefits for disabled people, whatever it might be, you know, environmental stuff. It's the left who kind of embodies that more in this country. But if it was Boris offering all these things, then I'd be voting for Boris. My political persuasion would probably be more libertarian, which is a bit of a mixture of left and right but the concept itself is absolutely i mean it came from i think it was the french parliament when there was like the ancien regime who were the right and the kind of radicals who were on the left and i get there has to be some demarcation on what kind of politics you like but i'm not really sure as i say how useful those terms are like horseshoe theory it's called where it's like if you get to extremes of left or right they both actually have a lot in common so Stalinists and Nazis and North Korea, they're all authoritarian, they're all totalitarian. So for me, the more interesting way of looking at it is you have a minimal state with absolute freedom, negative freedom that you can do and say what you want as minimal taxation compared to the opposite, which is there's total control of the individual. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. You can definitely see what where people's opinions are. For me, I don't actually, I'm quite fluid in the sense I don't really align to anyone. At the moment, I'm very confused with what's going on. And I find like elections quite difficult um, because of it. I think more and more people are reconsidering what it means to be left and right. I don't know if it's like an old fashioned Term or that it's completely out of date yet. But I think people are recognizing that there is nuance to it. I think left and right is definitely an old fashioned notion. I mean, like, it's, I feel like it's simple, it's simple to put yourself on the political spectrum, like the four quadrant, quadrants or whatever. I guess if someone was to ask me, I'd be like, oh, I'd probably live left. But, you know, it, it's so much more complicated than that. There are so many more factors that play into it. It's not just a case of your, your social views, there's also economic views and then a bunch of other things that contribute to your political idea so I think to tie it with the the left brush or the right brush is uh, to oversimplify politics I think it's way more you know in depth than that. So I think you can hear from what our students are saying there that, that things are really kind of complicated at least from their point of view a lot of what they're saying kind of blows my mind because I grew up at a time when it was really clear what left and right meant who tended to be on one side or the other and what that you know how that played out in terms of what you how you did and thought about your politics but it's really clear that for them it's just much more complicated yeah and the political parties don't seem to have any kind of uh, uh, standing in their idea of what politics is right not, they weren't almost not even mentioning political parties right it was more like issues you can pick and choose which ones matter to you well maybe that aligns me with the political particular side of the political spectrum but nobody's really that interested in saying no I'm, I'm labor I come from like a labor family you know no one's talking about a union no one has a kind of like felt relationship to a, a specific political party right and even some of those models and metaphors of whether it's a spectrum of left to right or whether I think someone there mentioned the sort of four quadrants that you see on these political compass quizzes whether it's a matter of libertarian versus authoritarian um, many of the, the students there seemed kind of loath to align themselves with that so I think the lesson to take from that is that we really can't think about politics in left and right anymore. Or at least we might want to think about that at a very abstract level, but how people are orienting themselves towards politics isn't quite as simple as left-right anymore. I think what you see is a kind of fragmentation on the one hand, a proliferation and splintering of positions, but it also goes along paradoxically with a kind of convergence because part of what's happening is that 
there are less distinctions or less clear distinctions between the fragments and fractions on the right and the fragments and fractions on the left. And the distinctions slip and slide and people slip and slide between them. And that's really intensified by the way politics takes place or at least is talked about and argued about online. Online, all sorts of people can become ideological entrepreneurs, people who are making their living from putting out ways of thinking ideologically about politics. But they're going to pick and choose bits of whatever they think is going to work to attract an audience and maintain an audience. They're going to pick and choose which bits make them feel good and powerful and make their audiences feel good and powerful. So you get a proliferation of people promoting politics, a fragmentation of positions, but also weird kinds of sometimes unexpected convergences too as people collaborate and share platforms and content. So Becca Lewis, who researches digital media at Stanford in California, she made a really excellent point about what she calls the alternative influence network on YouTube, how a lot of different political positions on the right of the spectrum have become part of a much larger network in a way that's quite unexpected and different from how politics used to be. My research was not claiming that the moderate YouTubers were actually secretly far-right agents or anything of that sort. But what I was showing was actually across all of these different creators with different ideologies, um, there were a few things that were connecting them. One of them was a shared enemy. In fact, two shared enemies, the mainstream media. And by that, they really mean kind of the mainstream liberal media. So, you know, the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, and so on. And then what they call social justice warriors. And that really comprises... Any kind of particularly young progressive who's advocating for feminism, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ issues, really it's, it's a very fuzzy term with fuzzy boundaries, but those are the two enemies, the, S, the SJWs as they call them, the social justice warriors, and the mainstream media. So you actually would have people of different ideologies kind of collaborating together on a video and they would say, even though we don't always see eye to eye on everything, we do have the same enemies and so it allows us to, to talk about these things. The other thing that connects them is a shared set of appearances that basically I collected data and looked at who was appearing in each other's content and that was the basis for actually developing a, a network graph where I found that there was uh, enough kind of collaboration and shared appearances in each other's content that any individual viewer could easily be seeking out only a mainstream conservative, but very quickly become exposed kind of in a favorable light to the ideas of uh, a much more far-right individual. And some of this has to do with the incentives that are baked into YouTube specifically for creators. So it actually is um, for any individual YouTube creator who's trying to build an audience, it's really common for different advice articles and, and how-to manuals to say, go collaborate with other creators because you get exposed to their audiences. And so you have, it's kind of this big part of YouTube culture where people will collaborate with each other. They will kind of hang out together, go on each other's channels. And then at the end of the video, they'll say, okay, go check out this person's channel. Go check out this person's channel. And what ends up happening, whether it's intentional or not, is that means that there is a lot of porousness between kind of these these various um, elements of various movements. So in the past, you had someone like um, 
you know, William F. Buckley was kind of a huge figurehead of the conservative movement. And he also was, um, you know, no matter how you felt about his individual politics, he played a very big role in setting boundaries between what he determined was mainstream conservatism and what he determined was kind of fringe right groups like the John Birch Society and other conspiracy theorists. Um, on YouTube, you have almost exactly the opposite. You have everyone kind of coming together in part because that's what the, the platform kind of incentivizes people to do. In our last episode, Becca Lewis was talking about micro-celebrity influencer culture and the way that uh, blends with politics. And what she's telling us here is about how the effort to build a brand and to build an audience is creating a kind of ideological convergence because people are going on each other's shows to try to, to try to build the audience. So what's happening is the structure of the platform themselves is creating a kind of ideological convergence. So we don't have a gatekeeper uh, like William F. Buckley anymore sort of setting the boundaries of what conservatism is. Now we have a network encouraging a kind of convergence of ideology. But that's not the same thing as a more democratic network. And this is something we learned from Hugo Leal, who researches uh, digital culture and, and digital media at Cambridge University, who wanted to tell us what platforms are and how they work. One of my goals in life, not just as a researcher, so every time the word network uh, pops up and I start criticizing the way we look at networks, they say, so wait a minute, so are networks this kind of revolutionary thing promoting horizontal structures and equal opportunities for all? Do each roll, roll eyes, I roll my eyes and say, absolutely not. And, and and honestly, it is difficult to understand how come this myth survives. Networks, and this is the main message that I would like people to understand, networks are hierarchical and highly unequal social structures that without democratic governance, without intervention from the outside, they tend towards inequality and concentration. This is known as the principle of the rich get richer. And, and don't, don't take it from me. Take it from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. Or from Lenin's theorization of the ultimate stage of capitalist concentration. Or more simplistically or simply from co-citation networks in academia or scientific credit, which, by the way, was named by Robert Merton as the Matthew effect. The rich get richer, and, and some of these networks evolve by preferential attachment. That is, the ones who have links will have more links. The ones who have who are ancient within the concept of the network, older nodes will have more links. And the distribution of resources in the, in, in the uh, midst is not equal. So there's new kinds of mixing and matching of political ideas online. There are new promoters and new communities that are accessed in new ways. But while the system enables that sort of new proliferation, it's not a level playing field. Some become key points of organisation and inflection and can dominate political spaces in really very new kinds of ways. So we've been particularly interested in and particularly worried about the right side of the spectrum. How might we understand what's happening there? So I think a helpful way to think about it is uh, as a family of right-wing ideologies. You know, in families, people maybe look kind of similar, have some connection, but they're not exactly the same, right? They share some things, they have a relationship, but they're not identical. Well, I think that 
in a way, political positions on the right of the spectrum can be thought about in the same way. There are some things they have in common, but there are also things which make them distinct and different. They may get on, families sometimes do, they may be rivals. There's a common route, but there's also kind of distinctions between them. So we might think on the one side, the far side is kind of the fascist, the far right ideologies focused on racial politics, anti-immigration, advocating what's called nativism, a very strong attachment to homeland as the basis for all meaningful politics and meaningful life. That's distinct from what in America is called paleoconservatism, a sort of fundamentalist kind of conservatism that in the US is particularly associated with the Christian right, wants to get back to the old foundational values as they see it of America in Christian religion and Christian morality. But it can often be a very radical kind of conservatism, not sort of go slow, conservatives don't do anything too much. They can actually be quite radical, wanting to re repeal all sorts of legislation and all sorts of cultural changes in America to get back to what they see as the true founding. And that's often connected to a, a nationalism of a very particular sort. And although that's a very American sort of phenomenon, I think you can see versions of that kind of paleo approach to conservatism uh, in countries like the UK and across Europe. And then there's libertarianism, which we might as associate, certainly historically, with being a liberal kind of ideology, not a conservative or right-wing one at all. Libertarianism emphasises the need to limit the state, to protect people's rights, so that they're not intruded upon by the state, interfered with too much. But that libertarianism has increasingly become very hostile to the state, to its rules and regulations relating to equality and fairness and consumer protection and so forth. So here you have these three very different ideologies, fascism, paleoconservatism, libertarianism, different ways of organising ideas and how people think the world in relation to them. But they kind of overlap when it comes to opposition to the liberal state as they understand it. And so what we find online is people much more easily moving between these otherwise distinct positions than would have been possible without digital communication. What they tend to all share above all is a complaint that the state has overreached by getting too involved in trying to manage the relationships between individuals and communities to make things fair or just as the state sees it. And hostility to that state can unite anti-feminist, anti-immigration politics with each other and with people who have much wider opposition to the involvement of the state in the economy or in providing welfare, healthcare and so on. In fact, there's a very long history of hostility to the kind of class of people who are involved in all that, the civil servants, the lawyers, the journalists, the scientists, the doctors and the academics. People who might be seen by some as telling us how to live, what's good for us, how we should do things, making rules and regulations that, that govern our behaviour. And the slipping and sliding between those positions is a really important dynamic in contemporary politics. So there's the question too of, of how all of that is organised or disorganised online. Um, and here we might think about five strands or five pieces of the puzzle. We, we might distinguish the fascist far right from the alt-right that coalesced around the mid-2010s. Um, we might talk about the alt-light, uh, the intellectual dark web or the manosphere where people are primarily uh, interested in uh, anti-feminist kind of activism. Um, but again, these categories all have somewhat fuzzy edges. They're all in flux, as uh, Matthew Feldman told us. A recent piece by Sven Weichard talked about fascism as a process concept. And I think that that's right, so that we can have a template, but one that is constantly evolving. Now, of course, that's true of other ideologies as well, right? Leninism was added to Marxism in 1917. I mean, before that, but but in, in power. Doctrines of liberalism look very different today than they did 100 years ago. So the first, I think, basic, even banal point is that ideologies move on. 
what was considered democracy 100 years ago didn't allow women to vote, let alone ethnic religious minorities. So ideologies in their very nature move on. That is also true of fascism, which has been forced to adapt in a much more radical way after 1945 because of that stigma of war and of Holocaust. And I think that that's something that fascists are very aware of because fascists know their own history as well as anyone else. And I think that they recognize something that we may have forgotten and are starting to remember, especially in the US after the 6th of January, is that fascism's best ticket to power, yes, of course, it's political polarization and you know a lot of the things that we might look at in history and say, these are generic, You know, the idea of a fear of an other or a fear of a you know massive depression. But I also think that it's one of the things that they recognize is seduced conservatives is their way to power. Is Trump a fascist? Yes or no, tick this box. Now, again, I have my own views on that, but it kind of occludes whether or not fascists can throw their lot in with conservatives at particular critical moments in time. And that's exactly what happened. People forget that both Hitler and Mussolini started off as members of a coalition government. The idea here isn't that fascism is a kind of fixed thing and conservatism is a fixed thing and now they're joining together in some way. So there's always fluidity, always shift and change in the ways in which these ideas are organised. And they're in particular flux at the moment and that's enabling different kinds of interconnection. But when it comes to fascism, as Matthew Feldman from the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right was explaining there, it's particularly driven by some core ideas now, such as the, what's called the Great Replacement Theory. It's kind of a conspiracy theory that there is a, a plan to change all the European white Western countries by allowing immigration that's going to displace all the people who were there beforehand. And that's the responsibility of cultural Marxists, people who are plotting this from their university chairs, from the government and so forth. What we're seeing now, at least in America, is the Great Replacement going in much the same direction, which is you could talk about semiotic travel. That's the academic term, right? So it starts out with white genocide by David Lane, who literally coins the 14 words, you know, the sort of white supremacist and neo-Nazi slogan and gets so watered down that Tucker Carlson is talking about the Great Replacement on Fox News in 2021. So I do think that that travel is important. And I think that that's similar to what we saw with cultural Marxism. So what's really important there is that term Matthew uses about semiotic travel, the online, an idea or a phrase or a concept developed in one political corner can just really easily travel to all kinds of other political corners in a way that just really wouldn't have been so easy before digital media, terms like great replacement, cultural Marxists that emerge from within the fascist ideology begin to flow and get picked up by other kinds of ideologies. So that's the fascist side of things, but there's also what's known as the alt-right. So the alt-right as a term uh, comes from Paul Gottfried, who was a paleoconservative thinker. And in 2008, he called for uh, an alternative right. And this was an uh, alternative to the neoconservative uh, interventionist kind of conservative we, uh, conservatism you might associate with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Uh, and he wanted a, a right that would be more focused on national identity, national culture. Uh, and that would be uh, more alive to ideas like metapolitics, right? The idea that politics is downstream from culture. And the alt-right 
kind of coalesced online around that idea. And it was a younger, it was a more fashionable uh, right. Uh, it was more edgy. It was more transgressive. There was a lot of irony and trolling and humor. It was associated initially with people like Richard Spencer, also the Proud Boys, uh, and now lately groups like the Boogaloo Boys, uh, Nick Fuentes and his followers, the Groypers. Uh, and their success of the alt-right really is their uh, ability to link to a kind of wider transgressive culture we find online, like this idea that they're edgy, that they're transgressive, that they're the new counterculture, the new radicals. And there's a link here in particular with Chan culture and the culture of 4chan. And this is something we asked Whitney Phillips, who researches this subject at Syracuse University, to tell us more about. The importance of 4chan in this process can't be overstated. So the people who were young technology reporters covering the rise of the, you know, the alt-right um, as it was as it was used before people were often scare quoting it and describing it as white nationalism. But the people who were first covering this phenomenon were people who also had grown up as teenagers spending a lot of their time on or around 4chan. So these are people in their 20s, right? They were 17, 18, maybe a little younger when 4chan was really at its peak uh, in an internet culture kind of sense. So they start seeing all of this swirling swastika stuff, pro-Trump stuff, MAGA stuff, alt-right stuff. And for many of them who were at these high-profile technology you know, platforms or, or publications, they thought it was a joke because it looked like all of the jokes that they had seen as they were growing up. It looked like lulls. It looked like everything that came before. And so the impulse was to point at it and laugh at it. And, and not laugh necessarily in an I approve way, because most of these reporters, you know, were not supporters of Donald Trump, let's say. But there still was this impulse that there was a sort of lulziness to the response to the stuff that they were seeing. So they wrote a lot of articles about it. They really shined a spotlight on some of this stuff that was bubbling up from these spaces. And as a result, a lot of older reporters, not necessarily older, I don't want to make this an age issue, but reporters who were not steeped in internet culture in the same ways, which often mapped onto age, but not always, that the more sort of traditional non-internet-y reporters, you could say, they then responded to all of these more internet-y coverage type stories where it was listicles of the racist memes and matching trollish rhetoric with more trollish rhetoric about how funny it was that all these, you know, Trump supporters or professed Trump supporters were using swastikas on 4chan. So a lot of this coverage really helped bolster the visibility of what became known as the alt-right. The alt-right was this strange amalgamation of a bunch of different people with a lot of different, sometimes conflicting interests. So it wasn't a unified thing when it emerged during the 2016 election, but it kind of got lumped under one umbrella because lots of people were suddenly using that term to describe lots of things that looked like trolling or felt like trolling or people thought was humor. So it, it ended up subsuming a ton of stuff, a ton of stuff and a ton of people who otherwise would not necessarily have gotten along together or been in the same boat together. So then when you start having, you know, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorable speech where she lays out what the alt-right is, that just intensifies this spotlight, draws even more people to it, raises the prominence of this term that didn't necessarily correspond to a specific set ideology. It was just sort of a group of people that got lumped under this kind of MAGA umbrella. And that became the driver of a great deal of media coverage and panic, 
during the 2016 election and then into the Trump era. Around the same time, so 2017 was when you started to see a shift in how the alt-right was represented and the kinds of coverage that it was able to enjoy. Up till that point, it was all growth. It was a growth industry. Everyone was writing more, 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 more articles about people who were at least claimed to be associated with the alt-right, some of whom accepted the label, many of whom did not. So 2017 in the United States was when the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally took place. And of course, the aftermath of, of that, of the horrific images that came out of that rally really snapped a lot of reporters out of this impulse to point at laugh at, and laugh at things, that there was suddenly a very clear realization that this stuff was real, this stuff was not confined to the internet, and uh-oh, I don't think they're trolling. I think these might actually be white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And from that point forward, there was a lot of work, a lot of different folks within journalism and scholars who sort of really tackled this issue, this question of amplification issues. And over the next few years, you know, reporters were making more of a concerted effort not to just call everything the alt-right, not to just lump things under these umbrellas, not to just amplify and oxygenate these views and the sort of figureheads of of this movement. And so by the time you get to the 2020 election, there was a lot more resistance, A, of using the term alt-right because it it was often euphemistic. It didn't, it didn't entirely capture all of the various sort of factions and elements that were actually going on under the use of this term. So people in the US kind of stopped using it as frequently And then also stopped just wholesale amplifying the things that were going on. So in the 2020 election, there definitely were a lot of problematic things and ideas that were amplified in part because suddenly the president was the one who was saying it, which raised its own amplification issues. But it was less the sort of grassroots, fringy people that were setting the mainstream agenda. It was people in positions of power. It was the president of the United States. It was Fox News. It was these mass media institutions that were then furthering the most mis and disinformation and media manipulation. And now Trump is gone. Trump no longer has the platform that he used to enjoy. So some of the noise has died down simply because he's quieter. But you still have Fox News that might not be, you know, this fringy, it might not seem like this fringy element, but it's still laundering in similar kinds of white supremacist messages into the mainstream. And so you you have sort of similar energies, but they're just directed in in different ways through different channels. In some ways, when you have a a more sort of corporate media entity being the the propagators of trollish rhetoric, essentially, that's more problematic because there's a veneer of respectability or Tucker Carlson might not seem as dangerous to some people as figures like Richard Spencer. But many of the messages are the same. It's just where are you getting those messages and how, how corporate does it look? And so that's really been the trajectory of, of, of where some of these energies have gone. They've not dissipated. They're just, they look different, but they're reaching probably more people uh, than they were before when it was still more fringy, at least in terms of where some of the, the messages were coming from. So I think, again, Whitney really helps emphasize this point we've been making, that there's a, an instability and a flow and a slip and slide between various kinds of positions that we're not saying that the very far-right fascists are the same as people elsewhere in the spectrum, but that some of their terms and ideas flow and move into what's called the alt-right that gives it this kind of cool, exciting, edgy, transgressive way of appearing. And then that can draw some people towards the extremes, but also draw the extremes a bit more into the mainstream when this kind of stuff gets picked up by mainstream news journalists and, and, and outlets and so forth. Yeah, I think, you know, 
At its core, the alt-right was basically just another white power group. But what made it new was its ability to capture this an energy of kind of countercultural online spaces. So it's slightly redefining how people think about conservatism and right-wing positions and nationalism and so forth. So now I want to talk about another strand, the IDW, the so-called intellectual dark web. That's a term coined by a New York Times journalist to describe a bunch of intellectuals, academics, people with mainstream journalist platforms, who again seem very far away from the kind of stuff we've been talking about, and in some respects are, but become part of this larger, complex, flowing network of ideas and positions, outlooks and analyses. So the intellectual dark web refers to writers who aren't particularly necessarily grounded in online culture, but who present themselves as deeper thinkers, people with a much broader analysis, but also present themselves as iconoclastic heroes, exposing the follies and the excesses of the mainstream liberal establishment. People like Jordan Peterson, professor of psychology, writer of self-help books, very, very successful YouTube channel on which he talks about all kinds of things to do with religion, theology, psychology, self-help, and politics and ideology. Or the journalist Douglas Murray, well known in the UK for his work in The Spectator. His popular books also get discussed and debated online. They give public talks. People will clip their talks and produce highlight reels and circulate those on YouTube. And then what they're saying slips and slides and flows into the world of the alt-right and the kind of terms and concepts from that community slip and slide into the way people talk about and debate the ideas that these people are putting across. Now, one of the interesting things about these figures is that they don't necessarily present themselves as representing any particular party or any particular politics. They present themselves as kind of unrestrained thinkers who respect no limits in their search for the truth, who are willing to say the unsayable and won't be cowed by orthodoxy. So they take on a pose of kind of traditional enlightenment intellectuals, free thinkers who are going to critique authorities and superstitions in the name of rationality and reason. But actually, what they argue is kind of classically conservative in that it's critical of Enlightenment ideas about reason. They think that human beings need tradition and myth to keep them grounded in the world, to stop them from falling on each other murderously and, and introducing chaos into the world. They think that human nature can't be adapted or changed. That's part of their core criticism of liberalism, is that it thinks that you can create societies and policies that will help people be nicer, kinder, better, more rational, and so forth. Well, these people argue that really to try and do that is itself irrational. That if you try and make people be nicer to each other, be uh, less prejudiced, be more open to equality, you're really trying to resist nature and you'll end up just being tyrannical. So then they can say that Stalinism and university rule about sexual harassment say are sort of the same thing. They're both unjust, irrational attempts to try and shape human nature in a way that it can't be shaped. But they can put that in a, in a position which is sort of like the alt-right kind of cool, anti-authority, countercultural, but they give it more of an intellectual veneer. But the authority and veneer that they're actually opposed to is, I think, that of Western liberal enlightenment itself. So all of this might seem to take us quite a long way from mass movements of disgruntled gamers or from edgelords swapping off-colour memes on 4chan. Yeah, in some ways it does seem really different. But one of the things that the intellectual dark web often argue is that particularly things like sex and gender are areas where liberalism has gone wrong. That It's tried to change the way people think about themselves when it comes to them being male or female, and that's just something you can't change. It's a prime example for them of how liberalism is kind of going over the top, trying to overturn nature. 
So liberalism and feminism can all be put in the box of kind of dangerous, irrational kinds of things. And that, on the one hand, connects them with a long tradition of sort of post-60s politics, hostile to the liberation movements that came out of that period that wanted to introduce civil rights for races, for genders and so forth. But it's particularly important when it comes to the politics of masculinity, the so-called manosphere. Debbie Ging teaches and researches gender, sexuality and digital media at Dublin City University. And she was really informative about this. At a kind of high level, the manosphere is made up of, of different groups. MRAs would be the more overarching term that's used, men's, men's rights activists, to kind of describe them all, a sort of umbrella term. But within the manosphere, you have uh, PUAs, which are pickup artists, you have big toes, uh, which are men going their own way. You'd have trad cons, which are more the you know, traditional conservative, uh, maybe Trump voting uh, religious types. You have no fappers, who are uh, men who have uh, decided to abstain from masturbation and pornography, and they're associated with alt-right groups like the Proud Boys. And then you have incels. And so already you can see that not all of these groups are going to agree on lots of stuff like religion, abortion. So you have a kind of techno-libertarian strand among uh, the more kind of techno-literate end of the manosphere, you know, whose principles are very kind of free speech, libertarian, etc. They're not going to agree with tradcons on a lot of issues around, uh, say, abortion or whatever. Although, interestingly enough, abortion is, is, is not as divisive as it, it, you think it might be, because, of course, abortion affords rights to women. And therefore, you know, this is, is an area which there's a lot of disagreement about because precisely because it's, it, you know, it would align them with a feminist cause, for example. So Debbie there lays out something that we've, we've mentioned that's, that's really important here, both within the manosphere and within the broader riot. There's a lot of different positions and opinions, uh, but these groups have really coalesced in their opposition to what they see as common enemies, whether that's feminism, whether that's campaigns for LGBTQ plus rights, whether that's liberalism generally. Um, so we, we've kind of mentioned a lot of these different uh, schools and factions from the broadly conservative to the far right. Um, from the alt right to the alt lights, the intellectual dark web to the manosphere. Um, but I think today um, in our current uh, pandemic situation a lot of people listening might be thinking about um, online anti-liberal anti-state politics um, in relation to the rise of anti-vax movements for example uh, in relation to conspiracies about the deep state uh, so maybe at this point we have to talk about QAnon right yeah, we are going to have to talk about QAnon and we are going to have to talk about conspiracy theories because some of the things we've talked about can lead into that uh, that kind of that version of anti-state, anti-liberal politics. And QAnon can be a good way to see how some of these configurations of ideas get organised and reorganised in sometimes unexpected and quite surprising ways. But I'm going to put a pin in that, as they say. We're going to talk about QAnon conspiracy theories in detail in a later episode. We'll have a lot more to say about how these kinds of politics identify their enemies cultural Marxism, the red pill, and all the other kinds of conspiracy theories. I think the key point to understand right now is that a range of different forms of politics that in some ways are definitely distinct, and there should be lines drawn between them, but those lines are becoming more vague, and things are moving around within them, and what unites them is a hostility to the liberal conception of equality. That's what they're rejecting. 
17th, 18th century ideas about how we could make society more rational and more equal. I think the core of these positions is that inequality really is natural and that liberal arguments that inequality is an outcome of circumstances or social organisation, they're just fundamentally wrong. And part of the power of that, ideologically speaking, is that you can unite a whole lot of otherwise very different people around it. People who all think that inequality is justified in some way, but they might have different reasons for why that inequality is justified. And they might be most interested in different axes of inequality between the sexes and the genders, between ethnic groups, nations, religious groups or individuals and so on. But I think that a lot of what is happening in politics right now is exactly about that dispute. That a principle of equality if not always a practice, that's shaped our politics for centuries, that principle is under a systematic attack from a new kind of alliance of different political groups, and that's what the so-called culture war is really about. So you've said a bunch of things here, which is hard to keep track of. So how can we make sense of all of this? Yeah, it's hard for us to keep track of it as well. Uh, there's such a lot going on, it all moves super fast. But I think the first thing to think about is the ways in which the internet has created a new kind of marketplace of ideas. Instead of the few main parties and a few main media outlets organising our political ideas and thinking that we can then choose from and take part in, now there's just a vast number of potential outlets and individuals are now making consumer choices about the kinds of political ideas they'd like to be served. That's very different from making political kinds of choices. But one of the effects of it is it's breaking down the old ideologies, bits and pieces of them flow and get picked up in new kinds of ways. But there are also network effects. The ways in which this gets amplified by, as Hugo Leal said, somebody who happens to be at the centre of a node, who's got a lot of connections and contacts, they can end up promoting some idea quite unexpectedly, quite suddenly, to a very, very high degree. But think about this from the perspective of the user as well. You haven't got to go to any great deal of effort to find out about some kind of politics. You don't need to go to a demo or a rally and perhaps meet people you don't like and think you made a mistake being there. You can just click and you can be there and start to find out about some kind of previously obscure politics. You can choose the bits and pieces that you like, that fit you, that, that, that serve your needs as you think about them right now. And there are lots of people out there online who want to sell you some ideas and some ideologies. So one of the things that happens then is that politics and ideology, I think, as well, becomes a bit more like a kind of fan community. You're picking and choosing the thing you like, that you want to be a fan of, and you can, become, you can do the things that fans do. You can write your own versions of that ideology, put together your own videos that promote it to people in the way that you like it. So it's really changing what people get from politics and what they think they can do with it. But at the core of it, at least to the parts of the online politics that we're looking at, is a hostility to any kind of politics of equality. And I think there are certain things which make that very, very potent online. We'll get there. The next thing we have to do in the next episode is think about how digital media changes the way people present their arguments, the way they appeal to each other and try to persuade them. We have to look at their rhetoric. In this episode of Reactory Digital Politics, you have been listening to... I am Whitney Phillips. My name is Uglial. Matthew Feldman. My name is Becca Lewis. I'm Debbie Ging. And thanks also to our students, Gareth, Dom, James, Lisa, Lauren, Max and Luke. And you also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. 
Me, Rob Topinka. And me, Alan Finlayson. And me, Sophie Ludkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. And production of the podcast was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University London. Please remember, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a review if you like what you've been hearing so far. If you don't like what you've been hearing so far, please keep it to yourself. <laughs>